Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. We are neurologists, scientists, and authors of two best-selling books and parents to two amazing humans. In a world where our understanding of brain health is constantly evolving, join us as we unravel the mysteries of the human brain. Through captivating conversations, insightful interviews, and thought-provoking discussions, we empower you with the knowledge and tools to optimize brain function and prevent cognitive decline. From nutrition, exercise, restorative sleep, to building cognitive resilience and the impact of technology, we explore the fascinating connections between brain health and other facets of our lives. Get ready to unlock the potential of your brain and embrace a life of vitality. Thank you for listening. Welcome, everyone. I hope you're all doing well. Thank you so much for joining us today um, on yet another episode of the Brain Health Revolution podcast. Dean and I are at home uh, drinking some iced coffee. It's a very hot day here in Redondo Beach, Southern California. And I hope you're all having a great day and uh, trying to stay cool and comfortable. We have a very exciting conversation. I think it's very exciting for me, it, at least. It is. It is. It's one of the mo- those contentious issues that uh, always comes up in the world of lifestyle. Absolutely. And we're, we're talking about fat consumption and brain health. And as some of you may know, and of course, if, if you are connected to social media or if you listen to the news about brain health and health in general, you'll know that there's been a lot of debates and a lot of controversies as far as the importance or inclusion of fat in our dietary pattern is concerned. Um, There is a camp that believes that fat is the way to go and it's the most important element in our diet. And then there's another camp that completely, you know, devalues fat consumption altogether. And then there are the scientists who bring in the nuance and they want to stay evidence-based. And hopefully we will be bringing you the most evidence-based information and the most nuanced information. Um, As you may have detected from the patterns of our conversations, and I think it should be this way for everyone, there is no black and white or yes and no and 100% in science. We're all moving along, we're all learning, um, and we all change as data presents itself. So with that in mind, um, the uh, script and the content of this podcast has been devised and created based on the latest evidence-based information uh, on brain health and fat consumption. I mean, I want to start by the fact that why is there such contention? And the contention is not that there are nefarious camps um, uh, with, with uh, a negative intent arguing falsehoods. It's, and the, the discrepancy lies in the weight of the truth. Um, as we always say that the, it's the problem is not truth, it's the weight of the truth. If you overstate a truth, it's a fallacy. If you understate a truth, it's a fallacy. If you um, put the truth or a fact in the wrong context, it becomes a fallacy, um, and I, and the reality is, it's that that nuance, that complexity, that three dimensionality, that <clears throat> contextualization of the fact across time, space, people, communities, cultures, all of those things that really have to be weighed in. Um, and of course, people have n- n- not so much nefarious intent, negative intent, but they do have an intent to preserve their comfort, their psychological comfort, their cultural beliefs, their, their uh, preconceived biases, their, their 
um, the way they've been raised. Uh, you know, I, I, I like bacon and I'm going to search for data that proves that bacon is medicine. And, 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 and all of us have that. So that statement does not mean that I'm saying that there are particular, all of us, including ourselves, we have to be aware of our biases. And we always talk about this, uh, the fact that we're vegans, but our, the, in the science, there are a lot of things that contradicts um, not so much veganism, but the fact that there are things that are healthy. For example, at so far, the data shows that fish or fatty fish are healthy, and we can't argue against that at this point. I mean, we can argue environmentally for the sake of the oceans, for the sake of animals, but when it comes to the science of that and brain health, the data is the data. We have to go with the data, no matter how much it makes us uncomfortable. I think we go out of our way to make sure that we have a check on our balances, but there's no guarantee for that. So it's up to you guys to to hold us accountable as well. And we actually appreciate that. <clears throat> and with, with fat, the, the, the binary nature of it, on both sides of the argument, I mean, we've been a bit ostracized. One of the huge plant-based leaders actually who says he loves us and our work and our research and the fact that one of the, we are one of the people that talking heads that actually do research and, and three different universities, actually four different universities. Um, uh, and yet he would not endorse our book because they said that if you are talking about fat and specifically poly and monounsaturated fat uh, in, in ways that might actually make it look as though it's good. And, and we said, but this is the data. And we, we even showed our um, uh, lack of knowledge with the quantification of that because science has not made that clarity yet. But we have to speak to the science. So on all sides, there seems to be a push for binary nature of argument or this thing that, you know, it's common sense. No, quantum physics is not common sense. Um, uh, nutrition is not common sense. Even for people like us who are nutrition you know, specialists and have got masters in it, we speak to our own ignorance often. And we literally go to the public and say, please challenge us with data because uh, community-based research, which I love this concept, where community does really good research and knows how to do research, not selective, not self-serving, but does the work of looking for data and then holds everybody accountable is actually the future. If there's one place that social media can be of incredible power is there, where the general public doesn't just argue for their own points, but finds data and, and brings it to the front and let the battle of ideas bring out clarity. And you would not think that some arguments such as argument for fat would actually clarify methods of argument, but it does. And this is where we are right now. And that's what we're doing today. <clears throat> and these ideas are not inconsequential. They are definitely consequential. I'm going to give a name to one of my patients. I will call her Maddie, but there are many like Maddie and like Tom's and, and others that um, have suffered because they've gotten their data from social media, talking heads that say, oh, don't listen to the old-fashioned medicine or science or, or doctors. And what that, that means is, well, you're listening to me, so listen to me and my beliefs. Or listen to your body. That's another one that I just don't get. What oh, is God. your body? My body doesn't tell me anything except my shoulder's ever. hurting. <laughs> yeah, and I know, yeah, that's injury, but there's more complexity to that. So the totality of it, what I just said, is that 
uh, we need more complex conversations. We need the audience, the population to become research savvy, not so much camp driven or group driven, but research and data savvy and just overtake the airways with data. Just pummel the airways with data. You know, uh, I was just watching a little clip of the, um, uh, what is the dragon show? Um, um, uh, where um, uh, the, the the Cersei has oh, uh, Game, of, uh, Game Thrones? of Thrones okay. and this dragon comes and just demolishes his entire army. Well, we need armies of thinkers, data-driven people. And that's something that you don't need a degree for. And you can actually learn how you can actually analyze data, assess data, weight of data, and just overtake the media and the airway with data. If there's any revolution that's worth its weight, it's the revolution of data-driven conversations, data-driven battles. Um, and, and that's going to actually take humanity to the next level, especially at a time where between AI and false flags, uh, um, you know, these, these uh, videos that, that create um, people, uh, reproduce people's voices and all that, the only thing that's going to matter is the weight of the data. So, uh, and the consequence are patients like this, like Maddie, who in her 50s, she was completely fine, healthy, vibrant, um, <clears throat> but she had um, some problem with her weight. And so she kept trying different diets and for decades she would be failing. And ultimately uh, she fell prey to um, one of these diet trends, um, high fat diet trends. Um, and although initially she lost weight because it does that, but weight is not the totality of the picture. That's part of the picture. Uh, over time, though, um, she actually de started developing symptoms that she wasn't going to ascribe to that diet because she had invested so much in it. And she came to me and we did a uh, complete uh, workup, including family history and everything else. And we found out that she had a massive family history of high cholesterol, most likely, but definitely vascular diseases, such as strokes and seizures that were probably prompted by strokes mm -hmm. and, and a heart disease, a tremendous history. Um, in fact, she gave a history, it was pretty interesting, of her father that uh, when, right before he died, supposedly he actually lost control of one side of his body and started looking in that direction. And we know that that's actually neglect phenomena as a result of a stroke. So, um, or most likely that. Um, nonetheless, um, we did imaging and this lady that four years ago actually had pretty good imaging had some microvascular disease and, and lacunes, these little holes in the brain and all that. And although we can't create make a causal connection because aging itself can do that or atrial fibrillation or any of those things, but the fact that she was on this high fat diet and her LDL was in the low 200s. Yeah, it was crazy high. It was 197, yeah. yeah, that's right. And, and, the, and the triglycerides were high. That kind of speaks to that relationship. And we've seen this many times, many, many times. So what we push out there as far as our beliefs and our, our concepts and our um, um, the, the things that we've seen from talking heads, including us, do not listen to us because of us. Listen to us if our data makes sense. Challenge us if it doesn't and, and, and promulgate where we create a common 
denominator of language and science that 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 really resonates for the time with the, the science that's out there and then we, we we go out there so it's critical that we uh speak to this because there are many maddies like mm -hmm. like Matt, and she actually did fine because she had these microvascular diseases and she had some cognitive slowing but we were able to change the diet exercise all these other things and she did much much better but many many people that we see in san Bernardino who in their 40s and 50s have stroke and they have vascular dementia that's unheard of just a mile away in Loma Linda where people are living healthfully and, and it's completely, it's not a genetic difference. It's not a call, it's, it's basically a lifestyle difference and availability difference, um, which is public health problem uh, access. So um, uh, to us, it's critically important that we make argument, not even for the thing or the philosophers the thing in itself, fat or no fat, sugar or no sugar for the science of how to come to the highest level of uh, truth for the given thing at, at this time. And at this time, there's nuance. Beautiful. Thank you for that. I still can't get Daenerys Targaryen's dragon, you know, burning all the misinformation, that picture out of my mind now. Yeah. <laughs> that reference yes. was great. Yes. And I hope, I hope we can do that. And especially for people who are very passionate about data and science and, evidence-based approach to this life. I think you're going to appreciate this. Um, beautiful. So there are a lot of people like Maddie in our, uh, in our clinic, and we've seen many in the community. And with that in mind, let's start talking about, you know, some of the myths that exist and where they come <clears throat> from. And we're going to take a deep dive into the science of uh, fat consumption and brain health in general. So one of the myths or one of the statements that you keep hearing, and we've talked about this in the past, but we wanted to kind of you know expand on that uh, in this episode, is the fact that people say that the brain is made of fat, so we need to eat more fat. And when they use the word fat, it's almost an, an umbrella terminology. Mm -hmm. um, and the the truth is, and this is essentially the beginning of us um, breaking this down into specific parts and talking about the fact that the brain is made out of fat, but we don't necessarily need to eat fat all the time to keep it healthy. Now, the human brain, this, this marvelous uh, organ, um, consists of fat, and scientists have looked at the composition of fat and protein and water. And around 60% of fat, 50 to 60% of its dry weight is, is uh, fat. And so it's, it's, it's important to know what kind of fats are in the brain and what their purpose are. So this fat serves as the infrastructure of the brain. It is in the cell membranes, it's in the myelin. And myelin is this white fatty substance, an insulating material that surrounds and insulates axons of neurons or the connections between brain cells. And this is important for brain cells to function properly, for it to communicate very well between themselves. And it allows electrical signals to be transmitted between, uh, uh, between cells. And, and in fact, it, 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 it significantly affects the electrical transmission between, okay. between uh, cells. And it's a, a lot of it out there because about each neuron can make as many as a few but or as many as 
uh, 10,000 connections, That's and right. some neurons, like the, uh, the, the dendritic neurons, can make 200,000 connections per cell. Crazy. I mean, that's, and all of that is myelinated. Yes, absolutely. And so in addition to myelin, there are other types of fats as well in the brain. Uh, we have cholesterol, we have phospholipids, which are important in the maintenance and function of the neuron. And these fats are essentially found in cell membranes, as well as the spaces between neurons. Uh, and they essentially support the transmission of signals and also the infrastructure of the brain. Um, so it, it's important to know that, you know, the brain does, you know, require fat for its infrastructure, but whether we eat it in our dietary patterns or not is a completely different story. Now, before we actually dive into the relationship between dietary fat and brain health, let's talk about what fats are, what, what fatty acids are. Now, from a chemical point of view, and I wanted to kind of take some time to describe the different kind of fatty acids because it'll make sense that nuance will clarify to our listeners. So fatty acids are these molecules, you know, they have uh, carbon and then they have hydrogens that are combined together. Now, this structure, this molecule of fatty acid has a tail. And this tail is usually covered with hydrogen. Now, the extent to which hydrogen covers this tail is called saturation. Yeah. So that's what differentiates saturated fats versus unsaturated fats. Saturated fatty acids are completely covered with hydrogen. So imagine the molecule and its tail covered with hydrogen molecules. That's saturated fatty yeah. acid. So no well, double bonds. Right. While unsaturated fats are only partially covered with hydrogen. Um, and why is this important? Because depending on this level of saturation, for example, how many hydrogens they carry, these fats play very different roles in your brain and they have different effects. Um, let's talk about saturated fats. So these fats are solid in room temperature and they're mostly found in animal products like meat, chicken, cream cheese, and in some plant-based foods such as coconut oil and palm oil as well. On the other end of the spectrum, we have the unsaturated fatty acids, and these are delicate, these are easily damaged, these are liquid in room temperature. Examples are vegetable oils like olive oil, canola oil, and they become rancid very quickly if it's exposed to light and to heat when they're not stored properly. Um, and there are different types of unsaturated fats. We have you know, monounsaturated fats and polyunsaturated fats. And, and but by what I mean by that is the number of bubble, double bonds. Uh, so when you take out one of the oxygen, there's a double bond created, which actually creates a kink. So these um, um, molecules actually have uh, uh, distorted shapes, cis and trans shapes and, and all of this. And that matters because that gives it its fluidity. That also makes it almost um, a, a lock and key phenomenon. The number of double bonds omega-3, that means three double bonds, omega-6 means, uh, uh, well, that uh, depends on where in the uh, carbon the double bond is as well. Yeah. That determines where that particular fat is going to be used. That's the critical factor. Absolutely. All right, so we talked about the two different types of unsaturated fats, mono and polyunsaturated fats. Monounsaturated fats are abundant in oils such as olive oil. They're found in nuts, seeds, avocados, and sometimes in whole grains as well. 
Polyunsaturated fats are mostly found in oils from plants and in marine sources, you know, fatty fish like salmon and algae and in some nuts and seeds as well. Saturated and unsaturated fatty acids are excellent examples of how even though the brain contains both of them, it doesn't actually need all of them to replenish. Correct. And when it comes to our diet, there are some essential uh, nutrients and non-essential nutrients. So it's important to know that not all nutrients are essential. There are some that don't do anything for us. There are some that actually harm us, and there are some that are very, very important. They're crucial to be included in our diet. Now, an essential nutrient is essentially one that your body cannot make, so you need to include it in your diet. Non-essential nutrient can be made by your body without any help. Now, both saturated fats and the dietary cholesterols, uh, cholesterol are non-essential nutrients. And I want to actually put an asterisk here um, saturated fats may be essential for babies and at very young age when, you know, their bodies can't really synthesize saturated fats or it actually needs it for brain growth. So there's a short period of time in one's life, especially during childhood, where the body and the brain essentially needs a little bit of saturated fatty acids to build the brain. So it's not it's not a phenomenon that is that applies to everyone. But beyond a certain age after childhood, saturated fatty acids can be created by the body and they become non-essential. The brain is very, very selective in what kind of fats it mm -hmm. allows um, to cross the blood-brain barrier. Now, for those of you who uh, may not know, blood-brain barrier is an extensive membrane that regulates the passage of particular substances from the blood into the brain. Mm -hmm. These are essentially the walls of very, very delicate arteries. And it's very, very tight, and it only allows specific things. And, and the rest of the brain is covered by meninges, three layers of meninges, which are incredibly um, um, tight, and nothing can get through it. And the only way to get to the, to the brain is through the blood vessels. Yes. And, and the path of the blood vessels is obstructed through tight junctions of these uh, endothelial cells. Exactly. Perfect. <clears throat> so, you know, large molecules like specific kinds of fats or proteins and other compounds. Even, even glucose, which is not that large. Right, and there are specific um, gateways and there are specific channels for the glucose to be transmitted. So it's very, very picky. I kind of, you know, I kind of feel like it's one of those gates at, uh, you know, at, at, at castles and at buildings where there's a lot of security and it really doesn't allow a lot of people to walk through or We're using unless Game you of have... Thrones, uh, <laughs> analogies today. So just, stuck, just, right? Yeah, just, just use it. Go for well, it. Well, I was going to go with badges. The drawbridge and... coming down and True. actually that's better. That's a good yeah. one actually, yeah. yeah. Instead of like making it more modern, let's stick to the Game of Thrones Correct. analogy. Yeah, yeah so... because the drawbridge is very difficult yeah. to get. And then yeah. there are like shooters with arrows to like kill one. people who <laughs> Where are you going with that? Yeah. <laughs> so it's very, very secure and only certain people can can pass through it. Um, now, in an adult, in a, in a healthy adult, saturated fat is not on the list of those accepted people walking through the gate. It's not an accepted compound. Contrary to what you may have heard on social media and people saying fat is good for you and then they put a picture of big plate of meat or butter or margarine, like eat fat, fat is back, butter is back. Nope, it's not back. Um, it does not pass through the blood-brain barrier and the brain is actually able to make as much saturated fat as it needs locally and so 
doesn't need restocking. And when you eat foods that are high in saturated fatty acids, uh, think of, say, you know, processed foods or high fat cheeses or high fat dairy products, the adult brain does not take it in. And this, the, this, this theory actually applies to monounsaturated fats as well. Mm. They also are non-essential and the brain largely makes enough of it so it's not taken. But glucose, amino acids, and other small molecules can cross the blood-brain barrier easily and it nourishes the cells. Right. So let's talk about the fats that are definitely needed and pass through the blood-brain barrier. Right. The other thing that you said already, but, but I just want to reemphasize is that there is no storage fat in the brain. Right, exactly. That is a very important topic to, for us to discuss, and we will discuss that later. Um, all of the fat in the brain is essentially structural, mm -hmm. so you won't any, find any usable or burnable fat in the brain. That would actually be a really dangerous thing. Think about it. If you actually had instances where the brain was starving, for example, there, it's not getting enough glucose, would it start eating itself? Nope because the fat in the brain is not storage fat, it's, it's structural fat. Correct. Thank goodness for all. Um, so the type of fat that the brain needs and it crosses through the blood-brain barrier are polyunsaturated fats. The polyunsaturated fats such as omega-3 fatty acids and omega-6 fatty acids are considered essential nutrients. And these essential fats uh, are not made by the body or the brain, so we need to have it on a regular basis. Again, I say this with humility, as far as the amount is concerned, we've talked about this in the past, we don't have a very good understanding of how much omega-3 fatty acids we need for the brain to function better. We're beginning to have some knowledge, but mm -hmm. it's still not uh, uh, fortified and, and solidified. We know that for certain genetic types like APOE4, there's more needed, but that's basically it. Uh, we, we really don't have more, more specific data than that. We also know from different studies, uh, from studies, failed studies in the past, where I say, for example, people were given, uh, for example, 250 milligrams of DHA per day, and then they were followed for a period of time and it didn't show any effect. Scientists are thinking that it was not because it didn't work, but it probably was either low dose uh, or it was given at the wrong stage of life where people actually had cognitive resilience and they didn't really show any in, uh, yeah, outcomes. The, the or... delta, the change was uh, not measurable. There's a thing called a ceiling effect in science where the ceiling is so high that you don't see a delta, you don't see a change in that, in the, in that population. Uh, but coming back to um, saturated fat and the blood-brain barrier, <clears throat> I think it's such an important thing uh, that we need to discuss about that because we were talking about the blood-brain barrier. Yes, yeah. absolutely. We definitely will. Um, so so polyunsaturated fatty acids are important, and um, there are different types of polyunsaturated fatty acids. One of them, docosahexanoic acid, or DHA, holds a very um, special importance uh, in this context. It's uh, essentially the primary structural component of human brain. As a matter of fact, 57% of our brain is made of DHA. That number blew my mind away. Yeah. 57% of it is as DHA and it's uh, it's made it's it's embedded in the structural lipid in the gray matter and in the connections between brain cells as well. It's been associated with better learning capabilities, better memory retention, both in mechanistic studies and 
in studies where they've actually looked at DHA content or levels in human beings and cognitive impairment or brain health in general. Um, now, the brain is designed specifically to collect these fats through the blood-brain barrier. These fatty acids are in such great demand that as soon as they arrive at the brain, they're consumed right away. And the brain needs them to form other larger fat molecules as well. You know, there, there are certain fats that are called phospholipids and sphingolipids, which are essential part of brain structure. These are made from DHA and from the other polyunsaturated fatty acids that are in our diet. The brain doesn't have pockets of unused fat. Each lipid molecule has a role in the structure or the function of the organ. And, and that's why, you know, this actually helps us understand that there's only so much fat that we should consume. And beyond that, it actually starts harming our body. Another myth is we need fats to make hormones and neurotransmitters or neurochemicals. And a low-fat diet can cause disruption in this process. Yeah, and, and, and yes, we do need fat to create neurotransmitters and hormones, which we'll get to. Uh, but the body has no shortage of creating that because uh, the liver uh, uh, gives us all the precursor molecules for this. The brain has all the precursor molecules for this. We don't need fat per se um, to, to actually create that uh, process. Um, we don't need exogenous extra fat to actually help us with production of, of neurotransmitters. In fact, there's been no study that showed that uh, a, a low-fat diet actually has led to low neurotransmitter levels. That, that, that's not been shown. So that correlation, that relationship is also a false relationship uh, based on just the fact that one element is connected to another element, but the process is not taken into consideration, that the process is completely independent and, and is driven by simpler molecules in the body. So that's definitely not the case. Exactly. And to kind of... Uh come and discuss the most important uh, point, which is a point of contention. And, um, you know, there are so many so-called psychiatrists, or at least people working in the field of psychiatry and uh, uh, neuroscience that believe that uh, fat can be used as a source of energy on a regular basis for the brain. But we all know that glucose is the most important and probably the key, I think it's safe to say that it is the key source of energy for the brain. And the brain does not have the capacity to use fat as a source of energy if it's healthy and if it's given the right kind of energy and resources on a regular basis. So this, um, this brain fat paradox is causing a lot of confusion in our communities and online, just people saying that when you eat fat, you actually function better and you focus better, where we actually don't have evidence for that. Yeah, and when it comes to energy, they're, they're not talking about fat itself as the fourth source of energy, but it's byproducts, breakdown byproducts, which is ketone bodies, mm -hmm. right? And ketone bodies are smaller um, through uh, molecules um, that um, uh, they, they can cross the blood-brain barrier, they're right. so small. And they are used in emergency situations, but here's the rub. 
majority of the brain, a great proportion of the brain can't use ketones. Agreed. So as a so, source of energy. Absolutely. So so these um, you know, so these fatty acids that you're talking about can be used in indirectly during starvation, during say for example in neonatal periods or when uh, somebody goes into diabetes, uh, diabetic ketoacidosis, when glucose supplies are very low. Um, they're broken down into ketone bodies, into acetoacetate or beta-hydroxybutyrate, and these can be transported right away through the blood-brain barrier, and they can be used as uh, fuel. But that is usually when there's there's uh, a great need for any kind of fuel for the brain to prevent starvation and brain damage. Um, but you know, once glucose is available and people are away from that danger zone the brain actually starts uh, using glucose as the main source of uh, energy. I was reading up on brain development, normal brain development, and I came across an article which said, which talked about how, you know, during the neonatal uh, period, the brain essentially uses a lot of fatty acids as fuel, but then as soon as they're born and normal development takes place, the brain switches to complete glucose mm-hmm. um, usability, which is fascinating. And that mm-hmm. that's the normal state of health. And, and when we talk about glucose, that's sugar, right? I mean, we're talking about sugar. And people think, okay, but we've all heard that sugar is bad. It's not that sugar is bad. It's not that glucose is bad. It, by the way, sugar has many forms, but let's just take glucose for that matter. Uh, it's, it's, the, it's the quantity and method of release that matters. When the system is overwhelmed by glucose, yes, you have the whole feedback mechanism where the insulin uh, receptors actually are downregulated and the, the system actually uh, starts uh, uh, re- storing um, um, energy in the form of fat and other things. It's a, a whole cascade of activities that, that, that go on. But if it's released in small amounts and in a systematic orderly fashion, like it does when you eat complex carbs, mm-hmm. it's been shown to be tremendously beneficial it's been shown to be tremendously available and, and accessible and appropriate and, and efficient for the brain. It's, it's in that slow release form that, that glucose is most efficient form of energy for the brain. Yeah, and not to kind of pivot to the ketogenic <clears throat> diet concept too much because that in itself is a different conversation. Which and we, could, we've had and we will have again. We will have again. Um, you know, the ketogenic diet... Uh, it, it, the concept started in the field of neurology back in the 1920s when they realized that there were certain epilepsies that were not treatable and they were mostly seen in children and in neonates. A ketogenic diet helped them. But that was a diseased brain. That was a brain yeah. where the neurotransmission and electrical impulse generation and transmission was affected significantly. And um, in those kind of situations, ketogenic diet seemed to help a small pop- uh, uh, percentage of population. These were recalcitrant patients that wouldn't respond to multiple seizure medications. And all it did was shock them more so that it actually then re- re- reduced the amount of seizures. I always bring the analogy of saying that chemotherapy works in cancer, but it doesn't mean that we're going to give chemotherapy to everyone. Sure. It's not a perfect analogy, but it makes the, the case that emergency situations, pathologic situations, and the response to them are not as useful in normal situations. True. Beautiful stated. All right. Shall we talk about the effect of saturated fat and brain health? I think that's an important um, section to um, dive in because 
yes, it's uh, it's important for us not to shun away all fats, but it's also very important for us to be very aware of consumption of certain types of fats and saturated fatty acids and trans fatty acids are one of them. We have to reduce them to the best of our capacity because we have enough information and we have enough studies uh, that show us that when people eat more saturated fats and if they if their dietary pattern is such that emphasizes more saturated fats they may be at a higher risk of developing cardiovascular diseases as well as neurodegenerative diseases like alzheimer's disease and um and that's because when people consume saturated fats that increases the bad cholesterol or the ldl cholesterol and this has come to us from large observational studies from multiple aspects of science showing us the relationship between saturated fats and increased risk of premature death from cardiovascular disease and dementia and so it, it, it is a problem especially for us living in the western world because the western diet it has more saturated fat in them and especially since this this change in the nutrition world where there was a time when a low-fat diet was the craze and you know there were more carbohydrates and then suddenly someone said well fats are not bad and then that has actually changed so right now especially in the united states people actually eat more fat they eat more whole fat milk they eat more whole fat cheese but we really haven't seen any changes as far as the epidemiology or the outcomes of cardiovascular disease, which is the number one reason for death in the United States and in the Western world is concerned. Um, so right now we're, we're going to go into some of the studies to show you how consumption of saturated fat has been linked to um, higher, higher incidence of both stroke and Alzheimer's disease. That's wonderful. All right. So... One of the studies that was published in 2012 in Annals of Neurology on Women's Health Study looked at 6,183 elderly women, and they found that those who consumed higher amounts of saturated fats had 70% faster decline in their memory. And women consuming low amounts of saturated fats had brains that behaved as if they were six years younger. And that's, that's incredible. Um, another study showed that Cholesterol levels, um, you know, when they measured cholesterol levels in nearly 10,000 people between 1964 to 1973, this was the Kaiser Permanente Northern California study, they followed them for over 40 years to see the effect of these levels and their brain health. And three decades later, they found out that having high cholesterol during midlife increased the risk of Alzheimer's disease by 57%. Uh, one thing that the question that might arise is that what does the high cholesterol have to do with eating saturated fat? And uh, we, we have to kind of make that story, uh, that argument, which you did already. But I just want to reemphasize, uh, there is tremendous data that uh, consuming saturated fat is directly connected to um, uh, higher cholesterol levels. There's no causation um, uh, as much as co powerful correlations make for causational arguments. But um, we, uh, this strong correlational data is what we, our entire pub, public health system is based on, from smoking to uh, belts and car accidents. Uh, we didn't put real humans. Yeah, the dummies got dem demolished, but we won't know until we put real humans with belts. Well, we don't do those experiments. We look at the data and, and retrospective data, correlational data, same thing with smoking and others. And the correlation has been very strong that people who eat saturated fats have higher cholesterol 
and people who have higher cholesterol have higher risks of these diseases. Well, you know, um, you're absolutely right um, with regard to the correlation causation uh, concept, but we have studied this concept so much and for such a long time that I think it's safe to say that the association between LDL cholesterol and cardiovascular disease it fulfills the criteria for causality yeah. when you evaluate the totality of evidence, whether it's from genetic studies, prospective epidemiological studies, Mendelian randomization studies, randomized control trials of LDL lowering studies. All of this points to uh, a causality between yeah. LDL and cardiovascular disease <clears throat> outcomes. And we know that cardiovascular disease is very closely correlated with Alzheimer's disease. There was a time when we only wanted to look at the deposition of these abnormal proteins and the amyloid hypotheses, but we now know that vascular health plays an incredible role in the clearance and production of amyloid and tau protein, and so it increases the risk of Alzheimer's as well. Correct, and I'm gonna pick on my blood-brain barrier thing again. Uh, I really think that one of the pathways to a lot of these diseases or one of the probably adjuncts or additions is uh, the damage to the blood-brain barrier. And repeatedly, we now see that high saturated fat leads to damage to the blood-brain barrier and its consequences. Absolutely. I have three or more studies to go, yes. uh, but I think, you know, I can actually put the references um, for the audience if they're interested to to read about it. I was going to talk about Dr. Mia Kivipelto's group in Finland uh, from the um, uh, Karelia project, uh, or the Finnish part of the multinational monitoring of trends and determines of cardiovascular disease, phenomenal database where they've actually stu studied people back in the 1970s and are still following them to see how the relationship between APOE4 gene, their cardiovascular risk factors like cholesterol and blood pressure result in brain damage. And they found out that regardless of the um, impact of APOE4, high LDL cholesterol by itself is an independent risk factor for the development of Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. And so our saturated fat consumption directly is linked to increasing the risk for Alzheimer's disease. Um, and, 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 and other studies. So I'm not, I'm going to stop talking about numbers here because there, there's plenty of evidence showing us again and again in phenomenal studies looking at populations that when you eat more saturated fats, you're at a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And it makes sense. You know, like you said earlier, <clears throat> it's uh, damage to the blood-brain barrier. Um, it's um, affecting blood vessels. And when blood vessels are affected, it affects supplying oxygen and nutrients to the brain. Um, and so, you know, slowly and gradually, it starts um, impacting our brain health. And one of the interesting things that epidemiologists have uh, noticed is the importance of addressing these risk factors during midlife. Um, um, there have been some studies of changing um, LDL cholesterol drastically when people have the beginnings of Alzheimer's disease and dementia. But it seems that at that stage, LDL naturally goes down. So, you know, when people start having the first symptoms of dementia, their LDL is not an issue. And so people just look at, some scientists only look at that window and say, well, see, they have Alzheimer's disease, but their LDL is not that high. But it wasn't because it, you know, it magically, the correlation went away. 
most of the risk and the damage, as we've said before, happens, you know, 10, 10 to 20 years before the first symptom of Mid-life dementia. Midlife or early, absolutely. Right? So it's critical for everyone who's listening right now to remember that addressing your vascular risk factors during your midlife will make a huge difference in disease outcome. The other beautiful point that you make is that what you when you see certain symptoms and signs at the time of disease, it doesn't mean that that is the causal relationship. Another thing that happens with a lot of Alzheimer's patients, they start losing weight. So by the time that they already have the dementia, they've actually lost a lot of weight. Absolutely. But the yeah. loss of weight actually started much earlier and was usually as a result of loss of taste, uh, diminished appetite, and all of those things that were earlier manifestations of the disease that that preceded the memory loss. By the way, this is especially true in Parkinson's. True. So Very by the time true. that they come to you with the disease, they are not obese. They're not, you know, the majority of them, of course, there are exceptions. Um, and they're, they're not overweight because they've lost weight over the last 20 years. And when you ask the family member or the patient themselves in the early stages, they say, oh, yeah, I started losing weight because I went on a diet. No diet is that successful unless there was some mechanical change, a process change, a, um, a neurological change in your proclivity for eating, for your tendency to eat, your appetite. Um, all of that changes a lot earlier. So the damage is done usually in midlife and pre-midlife. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have continue happening, but that's where the process usually starts. So those listening here, if you're 30, 40, 50, 60, uh, it, it, it's not too early. This is the time to start looking into your lifestyle, not just diet, but the entirety of lifestyle, because you might not see any problems now, but the process starts that much earlier. Right. Um, a note to all the nutrition nerds out there and, you know, some nutritionists who are probably listening to this podcast. Uh, we agree that this whole topic of saturated fats and LDL cholesterol levels is a complex one. And it definitely varies by the type of saturated fatty acid as well. So, you know, there are different types of fatty acids like lauric acid, myristic acid, palmitic acid, stearic acid, which is found in cocoa butter. Some of them are inert. Some of them are associated with increasing your LDL cholesterol. So it's complex. And we will definitely have nutritionists to come and grace our podcast so we can take a deep dive into understanding the effects of these you know, specific types of saturated fatty acids or and medium health chain, outcomes. Medium chain fatty acids. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, so so it's, um, it, 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 there definitely is even nuance when you look at saturated fat and its outcome as well. But despite this nuance, it's generally recommended to limit overall consumption of saturated fats. How much, so um, according to the American Heart Association and uh, scientists working in the field, there is a consensus that as far as brain health is concerned, the less saturated fatty acids, the better. Currently, most scientists recommend aiming for a dietary pattern that is about 5 to 6% of its calories coming from saturated fats. So, for example, if you are on a 2,000 calories a day, no more than 120 of them should come from saturated mm-hmm. fats. That's about 13 grams of saturated fats a day. So, you know, that that's a good aim. I think it's important for us to shed light on trans fatty acids as well. Which are the, the, the kind of fats that we've created. Yeah, right. 
Um, and it takes very little trans fatty acid in a diet to start damaging the brain and be associated with cognitive impairment. There have been so many studies um, that show that when people consume even two or more grams of trans fatty acids, trans fatty acids are created um, through an industrial process called hydrogenation, um, by which hydrogen is added to an otherwise healthy, unsaturated vegetable oil. So basically we're chemically saturating them um, and uh, manufacturers do this to create a specific consistency and palatability in products. You know, those cookies and cakes that are on the shelf and nothing happens to them even if they stay there for years, they usually tend to have trans fatty acids. Shelf life basically. Right, right. And so it's nearly solid at room temperature. It melts up on baking and heating. It just kind of keeps food smelling and looking fresh. Um, and so, you know, when oil is taken and artificially hydrogenated, they create margarines and soft spreads, and those contain trans fatty acids. Um, so they can be complete uh, hydrogenated or partially hydrogenated. Um, and um, they don't go rancid. So these are added to baked goods and cookies and mostly a very, very processed foods. Um, they're very convenient. They're very cheap, um, and they can be found in a lot of different food products. They have been studied extensively, and we know that they increase the risk of cardiovascular disease and stroke and dementia as well. Um, as of today, partially hydrogenated oils are no longer generally recognized as safe. So GRAS is is, mm -hmm. is a um, is a grading in human food. And there's several countries like Denmark, Switzerland, Canada that have reduced and even restricted the use of these fats um, in food services. And oh, hopefully it, the same is going to happen to the United States dietary uh, measures as well. But in the meantime, it's important for us to be aware of it. And so just, you know, if you're eating any packaged foods, just make sure that you look at it and beware that sometimes if the level is or the amount is less than 0.5 uh, grams, it's considered zero. Mm -hmm. So, you know, looking at serving size and making sure that, you know, you're aware of it, that would be really, really important. All right, so that was trans fatty acids. I, we always skip that because we think that everybody already knows. I know. No, that was good. That, that but, was a good yeah, summary. but they're they're basically found in pie crusts and biscuits and baked goods and frozen pizzas and cookies and crackers and uh, sometimes even in coffee creamers as well. So mm -hmm. make sure that you're aware of that. All right, so we talked about saturated fats and we talked about the importance of uh, including polyunsaturated fatty acids in our diet. I want to actually talk about um, oils in general because there's been um, a little bit of back and forth as far as inclusion of oil is concerned. Seed oils. Seed oils, yeah, that yeah, that that's that's a very sensitive subject. Um, but as far as you know, data is concerned, uh, when you look at the quality of fat, generally speaking, polyunsaturated fats have been associated with better brain health outcomes, um, better uh, lower stroke, um, lower risk of Alzheimer's disease. And it's not just because of their replacement phenomenon, which means that you, when you replace saturated fatty acids with un polyunsaturated fatty acids, you actually improve. It seems that polyunsaturated fatty acids provide an environment in your body that helps you lower LDL cholesterol by improving the receptors that take in LDL, that reduce your LDL. Um, and this essentially means that 
making sure that we do add some polyunsaturated fatty acids in our diet is, is important. Now, where does that come from? If it comes from nuts, that's fine. If it comes from oils, that's fine too. There is this, 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 this notion that adding oils such as extra virgin, uh, you know, uh, olive oil or canola oil or any other seed oil can increase inflammation, but we actually don't see that. We don't see that in observational studies. We don't see that in mechanistic studies. Um, of course, oils are very processed and they have a lot of calorie. So if there's any harm that comes from oils and concentrated sources of fat, it may be because they actually add a lot of calories to our diet. Uh, and that excess calorie can contribute to metabolic syndrome. And that metabolic syndrome could potentially contribute to uh, vascular issues in the brain and the heart and the rest of the body. But beyond that, the content in itself, the polyunsaturated fatty acids that come in liquid oils is not harmful. What do you think, Dean? No, I, I fully agree. And that's where the nuance comes in again. Um, if you have calorie as a problem, which in itself can be quite problematic, uh, then, uh, then keeping that in mind is critical. And uh, I myself am not against holding off on those oils altogether because they have such high calorie. I mean, one teaspoon of, of, of olive oil is more than 200 calories. About I mean, 120. 100, yeah. So um, it, it's, it's a lot of calories. So they should take, keep that in mind. Uh, but if calorie is not a factor, then eliminating it can affect you in multiple ways as far as food taste, as far as the health component that we just talked about there. It's not a replacement phenomenon. I want to, I want you to expand on the replacement phenomenon just a little bit because it is to make it a little more clear. This, that's in the context of studies, right? And studies that where they show that um, olive oil is healthy, people say, oh, it's because the comparison group was a very unhealthy diet. Mm -hmm. But that's not the case. When they've looked at the uh, replacement phenomenon, when they've looked at it in comparison to other healthy foods, it's still beneficial right. as well. Right. Yeah. yeah what, what I mean by that is, you know, it's um, uh, if you're consuming polyunsaturated fatty acid, it actually is a healthy food, period. Whether you're replacing saturated fats with it or or not, that that's a different issue. Um, so I think we should make sure that we don't vilify polyunsaturated fatty acids anymore because we really don't have data on that. And there have been some some conversations and some reports, and I say this with uh, with a lot of um, hesitation because I, I want to make sure that we bring in an expert in the field so that they can expand on this. But from from what I understand is that the proclivity of polyunsaturated fatty acids to lower LDL is much less than the proclivity of saturated fats to increase LDL. So you basically have to consume more polyunsaturated fatty acids in your diet to lower your LDL cholesterol. So making sure that you're conscious about it to add more seeds and nuts and sources of polyunsaturated fat would be important. But hopefully we'll have a very detailed conversation about that that particular so, subtopic. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, great. Um, and then the other thing that I wanted to talk about is, um, you know, um, the, the type of polyunsaturated fatty acids, whether it's marine sources or whether it's plant-based sources. Now, we know that, um, you know, seeds such as flax seeds and chia seeds do have omega-3 fatty acids. Um, they are in the form of alpha-linoleic acid or ALA, which gets converted to EPA and DHA. Uh, but there are certain marine um, compounds or marine plants and animals that have direct uh, DHA. So 
um, in Mediterranean diet and, and in the mind diet, the reason, one of the reasons why they are deemed healthy is because of the inclusion of marine sources of polyunsaturated fats in the form of fatty fish. Um, and it, it, it's, it, it's important for us to know that that is the food form of uh, omega-3 fatty acids. But for people who want to reduce their consumption of fish, um, for, for various reasons, for ethical reasons, or if they are concerned about the, you know, the potential uh, effect of any heavy metals that uh, are in animals or especially, especially in fish, we can actually have uh, plant-based sources of DHA as well from algae-based supplementation. Um, and it would be important to supplement mm -hmm. your diet, and especially for vegans who are concerned about the environmental effect of consuming fish. Um, Algae-based omega-3 fatty acids are essentially similar to a fish-based omega-3 fatty acid as well. Um, and the studies show that as well. Definitely, and we'll, we're going to include that in, in the show notes to show you that it really doesn't matter whether you get it from algae or fish. So, so that's that. And us, you know, us being vegans, of course, we, we would prefer uh, to, we, we get our uh, omega-3 fatty acids uh, from um, algae-based, just full disclosure, we take an algae-based omega-3 fatty acids, but, you know, people can do whatever they feel comfortable with. But although we, uh, because we did two massive reviews, we think that uh, there's, um, people should be m much more aware of their source of their omega-3s, because like, as we said, redundantly, that omega-3 fatty acids are important for the brain. Uh, you should know the source of your um, omega-3. You should be confident that you're getting enough. For those who are not sure, they can actually even check their levels. Now we're a little more confident about how that can be checked. Uh, uh, we don't prescribe to any particular uh, source of omega-3 uh, because uh, we, we don't want to market it. We don't want people to think that this is a source of marketing or for the tests. Those are easily figured out. You can find uh, on your own. But the, our studies show that uh, definitely, especially at the two bookends of life, mm -hmm. childhood, where omega-3, where the brain is developing at a massive rate, m you know, billions of connections per, per day to per week. Uh, and then later in life where brain is under attack, if, especially if you've not lived a healthy life, omega-3 is critically important. We think it's throughout life and the middle part did not show da data because they had reserve but definitely on those two bookends and how you get your source and how you get tested is up to you. But definitely those are important times. Absolutely. And I want to bring this all together at the end by saying that consumption of fats, um, whether it's, you know, poly and monounsaturated fat or whatever it is, or the amount of saturated fats that you consume on a daily basis has to be in the context of a dietary pattern. You know, what you eat along with that fat matters as much as the fat does. Correct. So, you know, from uh, evidence-based sources and studies that looked at dietary patterns um, and brain health, we know that, you know, the Mediterranean or the mind diet seems to be a healthy dietary pattern. And that diet essentially um, highlights uh, predominantly plant-based foods like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, which are beans and lentils, nuts and seeds. And they provide a rich uh, assortment of essential nutrients and keep saturated fat intake to a minimum. Um, and omega-3 fatty acids uh, can be incorporated through nuts and seeds or fatty fish and those who include it in their diet and they can all be derived from you know supplementation from an algae-based supplementation as well now 
I've, I've, I've received a couple of comments, like whenever we talk about the Mediterranean diet or the mind diet from some of our lovely audience on Instagram and social media, and they say, well, what does that mean? You know, so we keep on saying Mediterranean diet, but what does it mean for someone who's living in, say, for example, Thailand? Or Pittsburgh. Oh, or in Pittsburgh. <laughs> yeah. Or what does it mean for someone who lives in, in Saudi Arabia, right? Correct. What does that mean? So Mediterranean diet is, is essentially a construct. It's, it's a scoring system. And the, the foods that I just mentioned earlier, like fruits and vegetables and whole grains and nuts and seeds and uh, legumes, those are, those are the parts that make that dietary pattern. And those are foods that can be uh, had in any dietary uh, pattern in other parts of the world, you know, whether you're living in India or in Iran or in Switzerland or somewhere in South America your dietary pattern can be similar to that dietary construct. So the Mediterranean term is used because they've been studied in the Mediterranean area. And but even there, they're not there's not an, anything in particular except for the construct that right. they're looking at. And even when you look at the Mediterranean area, there are so many different variations Correct. of this dietary pattern. So um, I guess that's the most important thing to remember. And again, the there's, it's not an all or none phenomenon. Every small incremental change in your dietary pattern makes a difference. So if you cut down on uh, saturated fats and if you increase more fiber, if you just make tiny little changes, you see the benefit. And we have evidence for that, which, which essentially shows that even moderate adherence to a healthy diet makes a huge difference as far as brain health is concerned. So um, that's, I think, as as detailed as we wanted to get. Um, Although I kind of introduced some other podcasts. <laughs> material, yeah, definitely. Material. A lot of stuff. I mean, material. there's a lot that we could still talk about. The, one of the other myths was about hormones, that the hormones are made of cholesterol. Therefore, no, those predeterminants pre of, of, of uh, hormones are made by the body independent of your cholesterol level or extrinsic or outside cholesterol levels. So that's at all never. That's never a problem uh, when it comes to hormones. That there no data shows that people who have low saturated fat uh, diet have lower hormones or testosterone True. or uh, you know other um, hormones uh, such as, such as growth hormone. None of that has been shown. So there's a lot that we could talk about still, but reality is that we, uh, you as audience, uh, this is a great opportunity to kind of keep talking about the fact that if, if, if everybody becomes data-driven and, and not just the data that, that fits our purpose, but data that has the, the right amount of weight, the right amount of uh, context, and uh, the right amount of, uh, of uh, repeatability where others have been able to repeat it. And, and then also if there's even better data that uh, that research has been shown to actually lower risk of disease, if everybody collects data in that way and then promulgates it and spreads it in the population, I think it's a powerful time in history. Yeah. I mean, people are pessimistic about all this misinformation, about uh, pseudo data, and then with AI creating, I'm actually on the optimistic side. I really think that uh, 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 an army of, 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 of the general population, uh, knowledgeable, it's, and it's not that, that difficult, that the basics of how to weigh the data, how to look at the data, how to find confound, how to make sure that the data source is not being funded by X, Y, and Z, and then just speaking to the data, not to our own proclivities, not to our own uh, tribes, 
oh my goodness, that's where society changes. So I'm, this is not about fat. This is about societal uh, change. So yeah, I'm, I, I always want to bring that part of the no, conversation. No, I agree completely. I think as a society, it's our collective responsibility to debunk nutrition myths or at least be open to conversations and question. Um, and that's the only way we can all learn and grow together. And that's a wrap. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to stay up to date with future episodes, please subscribe and follow our podcast on Apple or Spotify and watch the recordings on our YouTube channel. We would appreciate you supporting this show with your review as it helps it reach more people. We look forward to connecting again in the next episode.